So um, when Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, he's referring to the Gospel of Luke. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it's addressed to the most excellent Theophilus. Now, we learn and we know that Luke is a physician. And um, there are a couple of things about um, this time period in being a physician. Uh, sometimes uh, people want to diminish that role and say, well, uh, you know, physicians were slaves. And they were. They were almost always um, owned by someone else. Uh, we've talked about uh, Rome and, uh, you know, the fact that there were somewhere between 60 and mil 70 million slaves in, in Rome um, throughout the entire empire, nations they had conquered who had become subjugated to other people. There were only six to seven million Roman citizens, so greatly outnumbered in that regard. Um, it isn't the servant that we read of in the Jewish sense. Uh, that's much more along the lines of employment. Uh, it, it had a cruelty to it, uh, much like your job, you know, just the, the way you have to endure that boss and whatever it is that we go through. Jobs aren't fun. But, uh, you know, it, it had, it, for a Jew and under the, the Jewish law, uh, slavery, servitude was much more the idea of employment. You would reach an agreement with someone that you were going to work for them for a period of time. They were going to pay your debt and also supply you with room and board, essentially, for that period of time. So that could be years that you work, but still the idea of employment. And you could even shift employment, servitude. Um, uh, you could find somebody else and say, I would prefer to work for you. Could you pay off my debt with this master? And now I'll owe you and now I'll become your servant. So so it's that sense of more, I mean, it's servitude. It's different than our employment. But it's, you know, uh, you weren't free. Uh, once you sold yourself into slavery, you were committed and you were legally obligated to fulfill that commitment. Uh, whereas, you know, generally speaking, you, you know, in our day and age, you can walk away from employment and, and be unemployed until you find more employment. But uh, these slaves were owned. This is Roman slavery. And it's important that we understand that. So in all probability, I know it's possible that Theophilus was not Luke's master, but in all probability, Theophilus was Luke's master. And he had probably paid for his education, which was extensive. Um, you know, we look at some of the practices of today uh, the things that they were doing at the time, and we think, like, how incredibly crude. You know, that's just so ancient and ridiculous. At the time, it was some of the most advanced stuff in the world, and it did have a very solid medical effect uh, on things. They, they knew how to treat infections a lot of the time. Uh, they knew how to set bones very well. They did surgeries. Um, so, so being a physician was an extensive training. And the time period, the minimum that, that a, an individual was going to invest in being a physician was eight years. Um, and uh, the standard uh, time of educational period was 12 years of, of medical training uh, that they went through. And the last of it uh, had to be done inside medical facilities. So... There were a few different locations throughout the world uh, that you could take uh, sort of the academic training, uh, but the practical application had to actually be done uh, under supervision in medical uh, settings. So, um, you know, yes, it was the ancient world. Yes, it was more crude. But still, uh, these individuals had to be very serious students, right? Uh, this is one of the things I say about being a teacher, is uh, if you're going to be a very effective teacher, you need to be a very serious student. So that's why, like when we ran the school, I could only be a substitute because 
as far as all other subject matters, I am not a serious student. Okay, uh, you know, biblical teaching, you know, serious is a heart attack. I want to know it all. I want to consume it all. I want to understand history. I want all of that. Uh, you know, mathematics, probably we should play dodgeball. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's that was my approach to, um, you know, the whole mathematical, which I just keep subtracting students from the lineup by hitting them with ball. You know, I don't know. It just, um, Luke is serious. Uh, when we're reading both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, he compiles this from interviews. So he spends the time to search out the individuals that were involved in the circumstance uh, and to then interview everyone that's available. And um, he takes great care because the persecution is very present so at times, uh, he's very careful about who he questions and how and what details he records. So he takes a more careful approach. Uh, prob- Matthew is probably more detailed, and, and I've sh- talked about that before. Um, Matthew uh, worked as a tax collector, and as such, uh, he was required in those settings as a Roman tax collector to be able to write sh- uh, verbatim shorthand. So if somebody starts arguing about how much taxes uh, they're going to pay, they, as tax collectors, would take out pen and paper and start writing word for word what was being said. So that, you know, just like a stenographer, there's an account and record of the interaction. So um, we see a lot of that in his gospel. It is both his Roman connection, because he worked as a tax collector and had connections inside Roman government, and secondly, like sermons and things are often recorded verbatim. Uh, whereas when you read Luke's stuff, you can clearly tell that there's a compilation that has occurred, uh, that he's compiled this conversation and that interview with historic accounts and other people's relaying of the situation. So, you know, Matthew has certain details that lend to us, but Luke's, I, I would almost say, is a more detailed, perhaps the most detailed explanation uh, as a result because of the thorough process. That that mind, which is so attuned to education and learning, is being applied to gathering this information for us and putting it in careful record. So uh, Dr. Luke is, is compiling for us Uh, this gospel. It's very uh, significant to take the book of Luke and to read it and then come right up against the book of Acts and continue Uh, because he has written the first to Theophilus and then you come to the book of Acts and this is a continuation of uh, the book of Luke. So unfortunately we're not doing that on this occasion as I've said, Uh, you know, having uh, just completed uh, Mark as we did, and now moving into the book of Acts, the former account I made, O Theophilus. Theophilus is um, also, there's some argument, uh, I think it's unnecessary, but uh, the the term uh, is loved of God or beloved of God. So then there are people that say, well, no, he's actually just writing to us as believers. So um, he, he, he's just, you know, here, the former account I, I wrote to you, beloved of God, here's the continued account. Well, in, in the first uh, gospel, when, when Luke, when he's writing, uh, he says, the most excellent Theophilus. And you think, wow, like, you know, it's, it's almost in our, you know, vernacular sounds like a skateboarder or something like the most excellent Theophilus. Um, It's actually a a Roman title. Um, So uh, you recall uh, in the book of Acts, as Paul stands before Felix, the most excellent Felix, um, those are terms of court. They're terms of officiation. Um, It's possible that Luke is uh, saying that sort of thing to all believers everywhere giving us that sense of being a dignitary, being of God's royal court. I think that's a stretch. Um, <clears throat> it's um, Being a physician meant that you served other people. And this is why wealthy people 
trained physicians in their own household. And, and physicians within their household were some of the best kept servants. They had luxurious apartments. They had wonderful freedoms uh, that were afforded because that physician served that wealthy individual's family, cared for their health, also could do bad things to them if they mistreated them, right? Uh, you know, they're handling medicines and, you know, potentially poisons and things. And if you mistreat your physician, you might not wake up in the morning. You know what I'm saying? It could go bad for you. Um, but they also, um, like, hired them out. They, they, they um, the, the master would make money by saying, oh, well, I'll send my physician to you. And uh, so when the physician got paid, the payment came back to the master. The master then cared very generously for his physician and uh, took care of him. But it was it was a business investment. Um, it was rare that in very rare that an individual would say, you know, I ought to become a physician. I you know, it, it, it wasn't thought of in that method in the Roman Empire. It was generally somebody else recognized the capabilities of an individual as far as being a student, the propensity towards helping people, and they would invest in that, and then that would benefit their family most directly, and then them also financially. The speculation is that Theophilus as an individual uh, and Luke, and there's one of the uh, uh, centers of training, one of the most prominent centers of training was uh, Tarsus. So um, Saul of Tarsus, um, uh, Luke may have been familiar with this great uh, Jewish uh, scholar, you know, being that they sort of have a similar academic uh, mindset uh, in, in, in a way. Um, now that you know, he hears of the persecution and uh, wait a minute, Saul of Tarsus has been converted to this Christianity um, and, uh, you know, that would be intriguing to the physician mind who perhaps had had encounters with uh, the uh, religious student, um, Saul, who is now a follower of Jesus Christ and has changed his name to Paul. So it seems that what's being shown to us in this is that um, the most excellent Theophilus, having reared up Luke as his physician, has given Luke as an assistant to Paul and his missionary endeavors, um, perhaps, so there are a few little hints that we'll see as we move through, perhaps because of Paul's maladies, because Paul uh, was sick. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that statement he makes about how um, he has that thorn in the flesh, which, um, you know, most directly translated is a tent stake in the flesh. And then when you think about the tents that Paul built, right, these are, these are nomadic Bedouin homes that uh, a tent stake is, you know, a three-foot wooden shaft that's driven into the ground that holds up a mobile home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, I've got a tent stake driven through my body. Um, then, then add to that um, the reading of all that Paul went through you know, the shipwrecks and the scourgings and the beatings and the stonings and, and the eyesight problem that he apparently had. Uh, you know, I signed this letter with my own hand. See what big letters I use. You would have given me your own eyes if possible. Lots of seeming physical maladies that uh, the physician Luke uh, would have been well to attend to. So um, a little bit of speculation, little hints uh, for us as we move through the reading um, but uh, Luke uh, begins this account and, and starts out, I, I began to teach you until the day which he was taken up. Uh, Jesus began both to do and to teach, began both to do and teach. Um, you know, a lot of people say that neither the book of Luke nor the book of Acts should end with a period. They should have ended with a comma because the Holy Spirit is still at work. Jesus Christ is still at work in our lives as we sit here. So that sense of continuation in this. Um, I'll also give us the understanding uh, that 
there's some debate. I've recently heard uh, a scholar who insisted that uh, the entire span of the book of Acts was uh, 30 years. That's the shortest I've ever uh, read. The longest I've ever read was that uh, this spans 40 years of time. And as best I can see, based upon what they're telling us about historical events, uh, it's probable that it, it covers 40 years uh, of taking place. Um, that's significant because uh, the miracles that we see in here span that entire time. Uh, we hear certain teachers in Christianity today saying, oh, you know, you're not a spirit-filled Christian, not a spirit-filled church unless, you know, your, your ministry is just a constant dynamic explosion of miraculous activity. It should just always be kicking off all the time. Well, if, if we take the miracles that are contained in the book of Acts and we spread them out uh, evenly over the 40 years that this took place, you're looking at less than a miracle per year. Okay, um, I think every one of us has seen miracles in, in our lifetime. Um, and, you know, I could roughly say that I've seen a miracle per year. You know, if we go from, you know, like a dead child being raised back to life and and you go like like when did that happen well my friend Josh Lauren's daughter drowned in a pool and uh, had been floating for uh, some time when her siblings found her did not take her out of the pool because their kids went and got the parents came back they pulled her out of the pool uh, they began working on her she was gone already lifeless, dead, unbreathing, no heartbeat. Uh, ambulance arrived. They've been working on her that whole time. They begin working on her, and they go through the whole process to where they are saying, there's nothing we can do. And Josh is praying earnestly, and that little girl just takes a big gasp and starts breathing in the hospital, you know, raised back to life. You know, Josh Lawrence, missionary to you know, Africa, whose life is dedicated to serving the Lord, praying, you know, God, I don't know what to do. This is all in your hands now. Raise back to life. I've seen uh, drug-addicted lives that I had written off. We were just talking about one tonight. I had just done, not happening. We've taken runs at this guy to try and lead him out of his bondage. From every angle, and you know what? Don't waste your time anymore. And uh, serving the Lord today, you know, life miraculously changed. Uh, lots of right healing, health, restorations. Uh, you know, uh, Kathy and Gary. Gary's so sick with COVID. Doctors are telling everybody you probably ought to get ready for the worst. And uh, Gary sends me a message. Please pray. You know, please. I'm dying. <laughs> And we all pray, and literally doctors the next day saying, like, this is miraculous. I know some of us lost people during COVID also. Uh, but miracles uh, that only the Lord could accomplish in his hands. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the same at work today as he is in this book. You know, I'm recording this for you of what Jesus began both to do and to teach. So to do. Um, I'm going to ring everything out of every verse that I can. So just stay with me in this, okay? <clears throat> Both to do and to teach. The book's name is Acts, okay? Most ac accurately, that is uh, attributed to a sign named thus because of the Acts of the Apostles. But realistically, again, these are the Acts of Jesus. And then you could also, by extension, say, these should be our acts. So this is how Christians should act, is really what we're saying here. These are the acts of Christianity. So until the day in which he was taken up. So what Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. We're going to hear about 
a number of the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Very important that we understand that it was not just Christians who saw Jesus resurrected alive. Um, you know, the apostles uh, weren't just 12. There were 70 that Jesus empowered with his authority and capabilities, and he sent them out. We get shortly here in our study of Peter uh, telling us that there were 120 that followed Jesus unbroken from the beginning of his ministry until his ascension into heaven. So there are 120 that followed unbroken. Uh, we're told in Corinthians that there was an occasion where Jesus appeared to 500 people all at the same time. Roman historians, Roman senators uh, wrote about Jesus having been resurrected. Flavius Josephus, in regard to Jesus being resurrected, right? Jewish, Roman-commissioned historian said there was the man Jesus who was resurrected, if it be lawful for me to refer to him as a man. Meaning, you know, that's a miraculous thing, that Jesus was resurrected. Uh, you know, is it even proper for me to talk to him as a man? You know, he, surely he must be a god, is what uh, you know Flavius uh, was saying. So uh, these infallible proofs and the forty days after his resurrection, the things that they saw, it's not just confined to you know an eleven, a group of eleven men. Uh, and we talked about the fact that all of those men uh, gave their lives uh, for the gospel and preaching the gospel, which interestingly enough. Uh, history tells us that Luke gave his life as a martyr uh, for the gospel as well, uh, that he was eventually put to death for preaching the gospel under Roman rule. So uh, all of the things that were recorded, what we've seen, I'm collecting information, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing. Verse, uh, let's see uh, where are four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And we discussed that a little bit more as we move forward, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when he had come, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom? So again, it, it's a confession of their um, worldly mindset and their short-sightedness, but I find it very encouraging. Right? They're saying, like, so are you going to set up your kingdom, and are, are we going to get our you know offices, you know, our political offices assigned to us now? Right? We we were asking that. Endless, you know, arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to have the greatest, you know, authoritative position in your kingdom, you know. And now uh, uh, James and John's mom is asking specifically for the right and left hand seat of power when you come into your kingdom. And oh, wait, now he's resurrected. Now he's dead. You know, all of their dreams shattered. Wait, okay, now he's resurrected. This must be it. All right, so do we get our positions now is, is what they're asking. So the next time you've got your foot shoved in your mouth right up to your knee, um, and, you know, it's, it's usually when it, we reach our own knee that we realize that, we, you know, you never see it coming. It's always after it's well embedded in your face that you realize, I am a doofus. You know, what a, I can't believe what I just said. Um, the Lord uses people like this, uh, people who misinterpret, misunderstand you know, function out of an earthly sense of fleshliness, who, who make wrong statements, who, who, who uh, you know, try to grab authority, uh, who are prideful enough to think that they're better than the next person standing next to them. He doesn't endorse any of that behavior, but he uses us despite that behavior. Uh, so it's an encouragement to me that you see them in this place 
uh, where this is their mindset. You know, are we, are we going to be able to get our places and our positions? He said to them, continuing in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So, so listen, I just want to discuss hopefully momentarily the fact that Jesus is going to return to the earth and he is going to set up his, and, and I'll, I guess it's a weird way of saying it, but his political kingdom, he, he is literally going to have a, a, a government that, that he's running and that he's in charge of here physically on the earth. Um, you know, for all of the people that, and there are a lot of people uh, that try to dismiss that. Well, no, it's a spiritual sense. It's not actually literal. It's just his government in your heart. And the more you submit to that government ruling and reigning over you, then the more people are going to see how positive an event that is. And they're going to submit to it. And eventually, Jesus is just going to rule every man, every woman's heart and all the earth. And we're all going to leave, you know, live peaceably together. It looks like we're steadily progressing towards that right now, doesn't it? You know, I just, I, as you watch the news, isn't that what springs into your mind? Is You know, I just, I'm constantly thinking the Beatles were right. It's getting better all the time. You know, I just, no, not at all. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's like Rome is burning. <laughs> the place is just on fire. I can't, you know. We heard our parents and our grandparents say things like, I can't believe how bad it's gotten. And now you're the one saying that, you know, in, in such a short period of time, you know, somebody has slammed their foot down on the accelerator. You know, we have plunged off the cliff. It's crazy how fast and how bad things are deteriorating in our present circumstances. So, uh, all of that to say, Jesus promised his physical return, right? And, and now people say, no, not physical, spiritual. Get your eyes off that target. That's not what we should be looking at. Listen, that's what they were saying previously. No, Messiah, no, that's not. Jesus, you know, we're not going to have a physical. It's a spiritual thing, you know? And, oh, wait, then there's Jesus. He arrives and he and he comes through the gate. Uh, and everyone declares him as the Messiah on the day that he was supposed to arrive. You know, when Jesus is saying here, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. That is to say, it is going to happen, but it's not for you to know when. That's, that, that's, that's the accuracy of this thing. You shall receive power and... Um, I'll dwell on that one word for a moment because that word is uh, dudamis, which is where we get our term dynamite from. So it's explosive power, right? So when we get into Acts chapter 2 and we see the Holy Spirit fall and the church explodes onto the world scene, that's specifically what he's talking about. Now, I'll just say right on the front end that... Uh, for those that teach, yes, that was for then, but now the gifts of the Spirit are not needed and they're not used, and so those things have been done away with. We're going to examine 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 in some detail to discover from the Scripture uh, how accurate, how inaccurate uh, that is. Uh, the Holy Spirit is for today. I agree. I think that a lot of what's going on in the church that's being labeled as the Holy Spirit is um, at best being done improperly. At worst, it's completely fake. It's, it's not real at all. So um, here, uh, that power, that explosive power that Jesus uh, is um, telling them, uh, foretelling that is going to come upon them when the Holy Spirit has come upon you you shall be witnesses to me uh, that is the word martyr so this isn't just you're going to be filled with power to run your mouth and to share and speak and talk with people you're going to be filled with the power that it takes to sacrifice your life 
for this message is what Jesus is telling them. And as I said, they all do. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me, number one, in Jerusalem, number two, in all Judea, number three, in Samaria, number four, to the ends of the earth. Okay, so <clears throat> you have the same commission in your life, and the Lord uh, will expand that for you according to his will. Um, a lot of people uh, get filled with the Holy Spirit, really excited and zealous for the things of the Lord, and immediately say, great, somebody needs to send me to the ends of the earth. Okay, well, I just want to point something out. It does happen that way. It does. Absolutely. Uh, but Paul is a central theme in this. And you got to understand that we're, we're 15 years from conversion to where his ministry starts to gain real traction. Okay. Um, very often where the explosive power hits is not what launches you to the ends of the earth immediately. Okay. Uh, that's Jerusalem. That's your. Where's your Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem um, might be, you know, a local boatyard, um, a local garage, a local grocery store, a local school, a local thing. That's your home. It's where where you are. That's that's where you are. So uh, you know, I'm, you're going to be my witnesses, willing, capable of dying for me first rate right where I've planted you. That's the first place. Secondly, in Judea, the larger region of your area of influence. And then Samaria, the much broader foreign, almost, you know, enough to where they still speak your language. You know, they still, they still might even have your accent, <laughs> you know, you're, you're comfortable enough, but it isn't where you would normally go. It's not where you would normally reach out to. You know, you find yourself sharing the gospel in places like, how in the world did I get here? <laughs> like, and why am, I, why am I the one who's talking about Jesus here? This is interesting. You know, the, the broader, to the ends of the earth, where you find yourself in completely foreign places saying, I am totally uncomfortable here. How, how in the world did I end up here? preaching the gospel you know I, I mean the concept is there my first experience with that was uh, uh iceland and then uh, you know being in, all on the same trip uh, then being in hungary and uh, speaking through translators to people about the gospel and then back into krakow poland and uh you know by the grace of god a lot of them speak english uh, there some of them didn't and we were working through translators and you're literally left you know, I led three people to Christ in Krakow, Poland. None of them were from Poland. You know what I'm saying? They were, they were from Germany. Uh, they were, uh, one of them was from Poland. There was a guy from Poland. And uh, one of them was from Paris. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, how the Lord will give you the opportunity to. But the, the important thing that I want to dwell on is start at home. Open, open your mouth in your neighborhood. Open your mouth in your grocery store. Open your mouth. Uh, wherever possible uh, you say I'm I'm chicken I can't do that I'm scared out of my mind pray for this power to open your mouth to fill you with a fervence uh, you know and it, it will come with fits and starts very often or the first time uh, you know you speak you feel like your head's gonna explode you know you just you know you're face is just beat red and you can't believe you're even talking and you're fumbling and stammering and you walk away sort of punching yourself like I said all the wrong things I can't believe I did that well that was an explosive power inside you that caused you to open your mouth and the next time it's a little easier and a little bigger and a little more effective and over time you, you'll get to the place where sharing is much more natural you got you got to start you got to follow you got to obey the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Tell me you haven't had that happen. Maybe you've never opened your mouth, but you've sat there and thought, oh, I should say something right now. I should definitely. And then you walk away from that and you feel like you held an explosion inside yourself, didn't you? 
right? You just you're boiling over with I should have said Jesus' name. I should, and you kept that inside. You know, crack the box open, uh, let it out. Uh, you'll get very comfortable over time, and be able to share with people, and that will expand. Your Jerusalem will become your Judea, your Samaria, eventually everywhere you go. So in verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So again, everybody wants to change this into something else. Okay, He drifted up in the air in front of all of them as they witness it. And this is probably the 120, not just the 11. He is carried up in the air, and they watch. Have you ever seen a balloon disappear out of sight, watched it go for whatever reason? You know, I just we do that when we're kids, especially because we loved the balloon, wanted the balloon, and then lost the grip on the balloon, and then we can't believe it. And we watch, and we're trying to look like somehow it's going to come back or something, and just... You watch those, and you lose sight, and then you see it again over there. They're straining to see Jesus as he's drifting away from them. So as this cloud received him out of their sight, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, that's the sense of gazing and straining and looking. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Um, angels, right? <clears throat> Here in the moment. And it seems that their reference and communication is happening because this is a very significant moment. It's a very significant moment in the life of all these believers in world history. And, and um, you know, they're probably feeling like this is loss, right? They lost their grip on the Jesus balloon, and uh, he is gone from their sight. You know, rewind this story a little bit into the garden as Mary clings to him, and he says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. The Roman Catholic institution takes that and says, yes, because there is a supernatural aspect of his body that Mary should not be in contact with. Uh, the scripture doesn't say anything about that. And the way that it's worded in Greek, in case we're wondering, is, Mary, you don't have to hang on to me like that. I haven't ascended into heaven yet. It's the sense of, you're going to have me for 40 days. I'm going to be here a little while. Now they've lost their grip, and he's drifted off. Feels like loss to them, maybe to us as we read it. Would have been better. Keep Jesus. Set up your kingdom. You know, Do all the wonderful stuff. He said, right, it's going to be better for you if I leave because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Okay, not only better for you, better for the whole world. So far, Jesus has confined his ministry to the one location where Jesus is at, right? Now, Jesus can be inside you and go into the whole world. Holy Spirit comes after Jesus departs. Jesus needs to leave for the benefit of all of us, and for the benefit of the world. It's the multiplication factor. It's the use of its power worldwide uh, through all of us. So this is a significant moment, and it's doctrinally significant, right? The Jesus you just watched ascend into heaven will descend from heaven in the same way you just saw him ascend in there. So it's not spiritual. The, the, the return of Jesus we're waiting for is going to happen like this, right? And then when we get to Thessalonians, we hear Paul telling us that specifically um, he's going to descend 
into the clouds. He'll receive the church and we'll go to be in the presence of the Lord for eternity. So the descent in that occasion will be into the clouds like they saw him ascend into the clouds. But then he's also going to descend later from the clouds and touch down on the Mount of Olives, split that in half, establish his throne, build his kingdom, focus worship at the temple, and restore the earth to a glory that we can't even imagine. So as much as we read about it, it's difficult for us to imagine how amazing and how glorious uh, the world will be once Jesus is here physically uh, on this earth. So uh, they watch him go up into heaven. He's going to come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. So interesting, right? Um, basic seventh grade understanding of this tells us that Jesus just ascended from the Mount of Olives. And yet when you go to Israel, uh, the place where they say that he ascended, not Mount of Olives. Why? Tourist trap. That's all it is. And they even do this great thing of there's a dent in the rock and they say that that is actually where he lifted off from right there. Just the power by which he came off the ground was such that he dented this rock as he went. You know, uh, you hear all kinds of wild stories along the way. Uh, there are certain aspects in the scripture that lead people who don't study the word. We need to always be willing to be corrected by the word of God. Right. right? It doesn't matter how much of a tradition the church has built or how long that big tradition has been in place within the church, if you discover in the Word of God something that corrects that, you need to bow to the authority of God's Word. Okay, um, You know, you take uh, the Word of Faith movement and you know, all of those teachers from that. Um, so there's... There's a few different words in the Bible for the word word. Have I confused you enough yet? Um, logos is uh, uh, one that we're familiar with. We get the term logo uh, you know, for your business from that. The idea that a single word with picture will represent your company. Word. Logos. Generalized word to everyone. Rhema is uh, the sense of private communication, right? You know, uh, I might say something generically to all of us. You know, on such and such a date, we're going to do such and such a thing uh, as a church. But then I come directly to you and say, hey, now when we do that thing, could you be sure to bring such and such directly communicating to you something specific? Generalized word to everybody, logos. Specific word, rhema, direct communication to you. Word of faith movement has the mentality they teach insist it's their doctrinal position that rhema is more significant than logos okay you got to understand how powerful a statement that is right because when you read john chapter one and it says in the beginning was the word logos in the beginning was the logos right the word was with god the word was god the logos was with God, was God, right? Verse 15, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus, Logos, generalized word to all. They say, Rhema, more important than Logos. I don't think so. I don't think so. The specific word to an individual, so much so that when they come up with a false teaching and you confront them and say, that contradicts the word of God, they say, oh, well, that's my personal revelation. That's my Rhema. And it overrides the Logos. They literally say this. When you say that contradicts the word of God, they say Rhema can override the Logos. No, sir. Right? That's, that's my strongest doctrinal statement on that. Right? Uh, you know, in the beginning was the word, the Logos. And you're telling me your personal revelation is more important than the generalized word of God to all people? No, it is not. 
No, it is not. And that's why they go so wildly astray. Because this is the foundation of their doctrinal position. That the rhema is the most important thing. They will literally sit at home and have wild imaginations. And as a result, they come to their congregation and teach things that they say God has revealed to them personally. And it is a divine revelation. And therefore, you must believe it. Because it's, because it's rhema. To which most of us would say, Doesn't, who cares what you've sat in your house and imagined? You know what I'm saying? Maybe you just had too much pepperoni pizza. Why do we have to listen to you? Right? Benny Hinn was the one who said, I want to teach you a new revelation. Did you know that Adam could fly to the moon with a thought like that? Did you know that? Did you know that he could fly like a bird? Did you know that? Did you know that he could swim in the ocean with the fish without an aqua lung? Did you know that? I mean, I'm literally like, end quote. This is, Benny had said this stuff. He then justifies it by saying, right here in the book of Genesis, when it says that Adam had dominion over all of the animals, that means he could do what they do. So anything that the animal kingdom could do, Adam was capable, so he could fly through the air like a bird. Okay, um, if I try to stay with you on this roller coaster ride that you took us with, what animal could fly to the moon with a thought like that? What, like, where does that come into play? You had a wild imagination and you let it fly out of your mouth and now you're trying to justify it with the word of God. It's very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. To, to think that way, and it's extremely dangerous to follow anyone who teaches that way. Because they'll come up with stuff all the time. All the time. You know, the pastor for Bethel Music says that he has eaten the literal flesh of Jesus Christ. That he has communicated directly in person, physically, with Jesus and that he is right now capable of communicating with the dead. Yeah, none of that falls within the realm of Christianity, pal. Right? And yet everybody's listening to all the junk that's coming out of Redding, California. Like, oh, it's the greatest stuff. You won't even believe it. Yeah, right. I don't believe it. Because you have invented something that doesn't come from the word of God. You know, this whole thing of Jesus specifically ascending from the Mount of Olives is recorded here in the scripture. Any belief system, any belief system that teaches otherwise needs to bow to the authority of God's word. That's, that's significant on a very broad spectrum of the authority of God's word, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and uh, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of James, and with his brothers, literally the brothers of Jesus who were sons of Mary and Joseph who had been born after uh, Jesus was born. So in those days, Peter, I, I mean, let's dwell for a minute on uh, staying with one accord. Okay. Uh, when we're going through the tough times, uh, when we're in need, it, it needs to be your practice to flee into the company of believers. Okay. Um, I am a loner by nature. I, I, I like to be alone. I prefer to be alone. I'm much more comfortable alone. And that makes my world very dangerous. It really does. I mean, open confession from your pastor. Uh, Proverbs specifically tells us, The man who isolates himself seeks his own desires and rages against all sound judgment. Okay? When it gets difficult... I have to force myself to go toward people to then open up my pitch black heart and say, I'm going to give you a glimpse for just a moment. 
Scary, huh? Okay, now I'll close it very back up. Could you pray for me? <laughs> and, and I have people around me that pray for me. I have to connect with people because I will spiral into depths of unthinkable loneliness and blackness, and it's horrible. It's horrible. It's been a very long time since I've done that because I've learned this about myself. I've learned this about myself. And I just, I, I have to force myself to go the right direction because I don't want to. The comfortable thing is to isolate and, and get quiet, get dark, go, go low. You know what I'm saying? Just live inside my headphones. <laughs> and man, it gets nutty. It gets really crazy inside my head, as you can well imagine. So, you know, it needs to be that we get out and that we speak to it. Look, if nothing else, if nothing else, just being around other people. Maybe you can't even open up. These guys stay together. They're in the, some of the darkest hours they've ever been in. Oh, and the light was shining for a brief moment. Jesus was and now he's gone. You know, hey, have you had those moments? Where you saw light at the end of the tunnel, you saw hope, and then, well, no, all that did was take you into a deeper, darker, blacker cave, and then somebody blew the light out. And now you're in a place that, like, you thought it was bad before. <laughs> oh, man, it's bad now. Frightening to everyone. Get with the brethren. Get with the body of Christ. You know, just look, if you can't open up, if you can't share, if you can't, just get around them. Just just get around them. Just, you know, go to church, right? When you do not want to go to church, tell me you haven't experienced that, right? You know, somebody saying, come on, let's go. And you're like, I can't. I don't want to. I'm not going to. I'm going to stay right here and eat ice cream. I can't, you know, just. And they go, get up. And you're like, you know what? Fine. And you go with a chip on your shoulder. It's usually that you discover in that moment how how much that lifts you up out of the mire. And you're left thinking, like, why why was I even thinking about not coming here? It's when it's most needed in our hearts and our minds and our lives. I'd like to say that I've heard this from other people. <laughs> no, this is this is what the Lord has brought me through. This is this is the things that he has delivered me from. So I tell you, there's great hope in it. One accord, staying together, being in fellowship, uh, you know, being in the word, being in prayer. So significant. So significant. One of the other aspects of this is they stay around people that are the most mature believers available at the time. Right? If, you, if you're going to be around people, then the other propensity of this is find somebody that's less mature that it's more comfortable to be around, right? I'll go, I'll go hang out with someone in my darkest hour who's not going to challenge me. Rather than somebody that's going to say, hey, what is your problem? I thought, I thought you were the pastor. Like, grow up, man, you know? I don't, I don't want to be confronted. I don't want anybody to challenge me. I don't want anybody to correct me. I want to wallow. I want to stay. I want to... Great example here of them coming up out of it, of getting out of it, of, of being around one another, of being in a place of spiritual maturity, as mature as it gets at the moment. So then 15, how we get to see Peter really stick his foot in his mouth. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. All uh, together, the number of the names was about 120. So there's where we get that understanding. And said, men and brethren... The scripture, and there's there's some discussion that the 120 that's being referred to here are men. Uh, so it's possible that the number is at least double that uh, in this setting. But at a minimum, 120 here. There's probably a greater crowd. Okay, But here, 120, about 120 men, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And that's so remarkable to consider all that that implies. 
that they were sent out to preach the gospel and to raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. And Judas was amongst them. And the scripture tells us that he was a devil and that the devil spoke to his heart, filled his heart with thoughts twice, and the devil entered him twice. That is frightening. That somebody that's this involved in ministry could have all of that recorded by the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. No wonder Jesus says, ah, I'm going to separate sheep from goats. And there are going to be people that say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Who does that other than Christians, right? Heathens don't gather together on a Friday night and be like, hey, let's go cast some demons out. You know, just Christians only in very specific settings even attempt such things, right? None of us probably even knows anyone who ever cast out a demon. And so these men gathered together. Judas was amongst them. Now we're hearing that has to be fulfilled. Uh, what is uh, being spoken of, we get to there in verse 20. So now this man purchased a field, verse 18, with the wages of iniquity, falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. What a pleasant thought, okay? Um, there's a couple possibilities uh, within that. Um, one is that um, he hung himself from such a high location and he dropped so far, jumped off, whatever, that um, the rope burst or, look, I'll just get graphic for a minute here about hanging executions. Uh, you know, the British were actually the best at it um, as far as using it as capital, capital punishment. They um, ended up using a slip ring on a, a cable, so a very thick cable that had a slip ring on it. And they put that around the neck of the individual and they knew exactly where to place that behind the right ear uh, so that when you dropped, they had a very specific distance based upon your height and your body weight to the ounce. They knew how far you needed to drop in order to break that very specific vertebrae in your neck so that it was an instantaneous, painless lights out. Um you, you, you would only have a moment of panic where they put you in the noose and they actually worked at the process <clears throat> where they built a room that was right next to the hanging gallows. And when it came time, the priests would come in and you had been in that cell not knowing that right on the other side of the wall was the execution chamber. They would pull the lever and slide the wall out of the way, put you in the noose, stand you over the hole, pull the lever. There was only like two and a half, three seconds from the time you realized this is the moment to where you were gone. Okay. And they, the British considered that to be the most merciful method. They learned that through trial and error by hanging people off from walls and all kinds of public execution things where literally a lot of people's heads came off. So put them in the noose and drop them 20 feet because you think that that's going to be like a big hoorah for the crowd and it ends up being way more gruesome than what you expected, okay? Uh, not just trying to be graphic, but Judas, like why would he fall and burst open? Uh, it may have been something like that where just out of his whole desperation for the terror and the failure that he's been through, he goes to the highest point, slings the rope, jumps off the cliff, and whatever reason, you know, branch breaks, rope snaps, something more gruesome occurs, he falls and bursts open. Point being, the scripture records for us this man ended very graphically and this is generally what sin does when we are being prompted by the holy spirit to repent over and over and over and over and over again and we just plow our way through in rebellion there's usually a very tragic end it, it doesn't just fade out quietly usually there's some horrific thing and so here he burst open in the middle, and 
his entrails gushed out, and he became known to all those who dwell in Jerusalem. So the field is called, in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalm, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So this is a combination of a couple verses. Um, I remember when Bill Clinton uh, was president, a lot of Christians had bumper stickers that just said, Bill Clinton, Psalm 109, verse 8, which is this right here, which is, may his days be cut short and another take his place of office. And, you know, so every time we've had somebody that Christians have disapproved of that, you know, then it says that president's name in Psalm 109, verse 8. Uh, so this is what Peter's referring to, and he's a serious enough student of the scripture that he understands this was actually referencing Judas. And and so someone else needs to take his uh, place of office. Long story short, the guy that's supposed to take his place of office is Saul of Tarsus. And the Holy Spirit's going to do that, right? Jesus chose each of the 12 apostles previously, and Judas is, uh, and Jesus is going to replace you know, Judas himself by choosing Saul. But here they think, okay, we got to do this. And that's usually where things come off the rails, right? When somebody sees that's something that God wants done, and then they say, I know, I will do it. Um, you know, that's, that's usually tragic in uh, its outcome. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection, or maybe not. You know, maybe rather Saul of Tarsus. But okay, guys, let's take a run at it here. They proposed to Joseph called Barsadus, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Okay, and that's usually the way it goes, right? You think you're in a pinch, and so you say, okay, Lord, What's it going to be, option A or B? I just know that you're calling me to do one of these two, so please show me whether I should step through door A or step through door B. And God slams both doors and then tears down the whole building and leaves you standing in the rubble, and the 11th hour comes and goes, and you're like 100 miles away from that whole occasion, and God shows you, that it's not even a door I wanted you to walk through, you know. It's this gate right here, or who knows what. I just, you know, just trying to create the illustration. He does what he wants to. He, you know, it's good sometimes when we recognize a need. Uh, but you want to be patient and wait for God to orchestrate the circumstances. Because sometimes, um, sometimes you just end up with egg on your face. That's that's when that's when it's least embarrassing, you know. It's worse when you, uh, you know, create tragic circumstances and try to do something that the Lord never intended to be done. So consider. So they're going to choose of these two, Joseph called Barsadus and uh, surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Uh, that's the last we hear of Matthias. End of discussion. You know, There are those that want to insist that certain things that happened in church history are accurate, and Matthias did wonderful things. Um, but honestly, uh, there's almost no way to verify any of that. It really seems like wild speculation. It, it's almost as though, and that's it. Just, I don't know what, they printed up a few business cards and Matthias was out trying to drum up some business and nothing. Um, think about that in comparison to... Paul, the apostle. Um, minimum, one-third of the New Testament. 
Uh, if you wrote Hebrews, it's a large enough book that that makes it almost two thirds of the New Testament written by Paul. Um, think about how much doctrine we govern ourselves by. Based on think about the rapture of the church and the knowledge we have of that based upon Paul's right. I mean, just there's a long list of stuff. That if you don't have the Apostle Paul as a Christian, you don't have at all. And I just, I'll just dwell lastly on that thought of, you know, you can dial this right down to a personal level. Where when you see what the Lord wants to happen, it's much better to let the Lord create those circumstances than to try and take matters into your own hand and generate them. You know. At best, nothing comes of it when we do it ourselves. At worst, bad things are generated by it. So uh, the opening uh, to the book of Acts, we'll pick up at chapter 2 next week, but uh, I hope you, you dwell on that whole thought. The, the dynamite power, the explosive power working in our lives, working in the church today, so, so much needed. And uh, the way that happens is as we... Submit ourselves to the Lord and let him accomplish that work in our hearts and minds. Amen? Amen. So let's stand together and we'll pray.